I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So we're going to, I'm here today really to um, sort of organise or get going a conversation between these two great people. Now they've both, they've written books that are on similar themes but sort of take a different approach. So if I could just explain, Alex who is a writer, activist and author of this really gripping read, The Candidate, which is an account of um, Corbynism, really, and the politics behind it, including a chapter on the election last year. And I've no doubt your publishers will be ringing you, have already rung you about a chapter on the local elections, which I'm hoping we're going to talk about. Um, so, in a way, Alex, although he's the younger of the pa- the youngest in the panel, you've written more about the past in a funny way. And Hillary is writing about the future, so new politics from the left. Although you do talk quite a lot about the history of the left in it, and it's a very, if I may say, I love short books. It's a short, and no, no, I think it's beautifully structured. So it's a short and thoughtful book about various phases in the history of the left and how those might play out were we to have a Labour government. Is that a fair summary? Yes, but there was a lot I had to cut. It just, it was tear, I was almost in tears at the kind of slashing. But that's why it's good. (laughs) Well, okay. Because, you know, you you need those cuts. So I thought we'd start, because we're going to be talking in general rather than talking about your book specifically, is ask you both to say something quite brief about the moment we're in now. Because if we'd have met last week, and I said this about both your books are kind of written on the high of the unexpected results of 2017. And that high has lasted, when was it? Last June, where are we now? May. So we've had nearly a year of the kind of, my God, Jeremy Corbyn could do it. Now we're in a slightly different moment. I mean, I'm not saying that he couldn't do it. So Alex, why don't you start by telling us your thoughts about what this latest electoral turn means or doesn't mean. Okay. Um, well, in uh, my book, The Candidate, I traced the kind of forces which came together to um, give life to Corbynism. It's a bad name, but the, the movement which is uh, cohered around Jeremy Corbyn. And I think if you apply that historical perspective to the latest local election results, then you can see that they're actually 
pretty good. I mean, there's been a, a load of media commentary saying, you know, this is a disaster, and the right of the Labour Party saying this is a disaster. Um, these aren't good enough. Based on most of this commentary is based on the kind of usual rules of the electoral cycle, which were smashed to pieces last year, which doesn't seem to have registered with most of the commentators who are now talking about it. So obviously, normally, um, a, in, a couple of years into a government or a few, uh, one year into a government, the opposition should be surging ahead. And so there's all these comparisons. Labour should be winning 500 council seats, 1,000 council seats, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, when you look at the results... I mean, it's quite interesting, I find, that how the definition of failure has changed, which is, must be encouraging for anybody who supports Jeremy Corbyn. Last year, after the local election results, which were bad, um, one prominent journalist wrote that Jeremy Corbyn was leading Labour to oblivion. This year, um, after the results, failure now means the best, lo- the best local election results in London since 1971. And so, on. so on that trajectory, it's, go- it's all going quite well. But um, I think when you look at the kind of people who vote in local, ele- local elections... Um, they exclude the particular groups that Jeremy Corbyn's form of politics has been especially effective at mobilising. So in the general election last year, Labour won 60% of the vote amongst under 30-year-olds. And two, 2 million people who voted Labour in 2017 hadn't voted at all in 2015. They were previous non-voters. So Jeremy Corbyn somehow is ex- especially effective at mobilising young people and non- previous non-voters. And those are exactly the groups of people who don't vote in local elections. So what happened in the local elections last week is that, that by you know, all the analysis, Labour effectively sustained the level of support it had in the general election, yet it did that without its kind of secret weapons, without these people oh, that it can mobilise. Right, mm. so that if you added those back in mm. to a, ge- at a general election, it, Labour would do even better. Yeah, and there are, yeah, several reasons. Really well. there, are, yeah. there are several reasons to think it would. Firstly... Jeremy Corbyn's kind of politics is movement politics. It's, it's snowballed in the general election campaign. Labour gained between 11 and 16 points in the polls, which is not supposed to be even possible. That, you can't do that in a local election campaign because you're not, you're not offering to transform the country. The, you know, the local council is not going to transform the country. So there's that, that um, aspect. Media regulations are not enforced where they yeah. have to have equal airtime. That's important. And third, it's just the demographics of the voters are... Labour's weakest. You know, most of the people who vote in local elections are older. Young people don't. And those people are disproportionately in favour of the Conservatives. So, so to sustain the general election support in an election which is not best suited to Jeremy Corbyn's particular type of politics, I think, is actually a good performance. Yeah. Perhaps we might come back to the fact that I'm very interested. There are lots of now young activists who are councillors. You know, so because people always say all these people joined under Ed's rule of £3 membership, but they don't do anything. But actually, there's a whole wave of sort of 26 year old councillors who are doing incredible things at a local level. So Hilary, I want to ask you, I, I, I neglected my chair's duty. I'm sure most people know you here, but can I just describe you? You are, and we agree, I would describe you as an indefatigable. Rather than a veteran. Rather than a veteran <laughs> or a stalwart, because those are two words that should be banished. So you're indefatigable, which you can be at any age and you continue to be. An intellectual... I don't always feel it. No, I know. Well, you have to do it. You've got to be it for the next 40 minutes okay. and then you can collapse. Um, so you're, and you're a writer and an intellectual and editor of Red Pepper. Co-editor. co-editor and a fellow of the Transnational Institute. So tell us your thoughts about this <clears throat> moment now. Well, I, yes, I agree with Alex. Um, and I think I'd add, because in a way, it, when he's reacting to the media, I felt very disconnected with the way the media described it. Firstly, because they described it as if it was a national election. They yeah. talked as if, you know, Jeremy's done badly because the Tories in su- is in such a mess, are in such a mess and Windrush and so on. So he should have done better. Yeah. 
as if it was a national election. And, and it was a local election, and I did quite a lot of canvassing, and people were talking about local issues. I mean, people are not stupid. I mean, they're also very, you know, sceptical about local government, so you can understand why the turnout wasn't brilliant. But so that's one factor, that it is different. And secondly, I think, you know, they, they took seriously the kind of campaigning rhetoric about, you know, we will, you know, turn Wandsworth red. And I, I was brought up in a very electoral political family, happened to be liberal. But, you know, at election time, the liberals would be saying, you know, we're going to take the heartlands of Labour, you know, we're going to, you know, win the industrial seats, you know, and of course they didn't. And, and nobody said this is the end. Well, they probably did, but, you know, but I knew that actually, meanwhile, the liberals were actually consolidating quite well their positions in local government and, you know, just by numbers of councillors. And that's what was important. And similarly, you know, Corbyn's Labour Party has consolidated like Wandsworth. I mean, A, they won the popular vote, which, you know, isn't surprising given that the Battersea result in the general election was, you know, in favour of a shift. It was a massive shift to Labour. Um, but they won the popular vote and they increased the number of councillors really significantly. And this was in a, a, a borough that's been tourist since something like 1978. And similarly, in Westminster, the, there's a huge discrepancy between the popular vote and the number of councillors, because actually these, particularly Westminster, as we all know, is very sort of gerrymandered. You know, it, there's been a kind of movement of Labour voters all to what's, you know, particular seats. So that, you know, it's already pretty kind of biased against Labour. So, so I, I don't feel despondent. I think there's a lot to discuss. And I think the other problem that does depress me is, we'll maybe come on to it later, but is these incessant attacks. You know, I remember the left, you know, your dad, I remember I did my thesis on Nye Bevan, him, all he those... He wasn't my dad. No, no, he wasn't your dad. dad. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So, so it was Tony Ben, <laughs> Nye Bevan, just to be clear. They all, you know, and Jeremy Corbyn too, they all, when it came to the election, they would stop criticising. They would say, look, this is the part, our party. You know, we've yeah. got to work for it. And But this, the right, just don't have yeah. any of that party discipline. And it just pisses me off because... You know, Corbyn is trying to do things, but he's got no time to develop policies, develop alternatives, have the sort of peace to kind of just think. Because it's like bang, bang, bang. I think it's fair to say that the right want a Corbyn government less than they want a continuation of a Theresa May government. I think that's, I mean, the right of the Labour Party. They are absolutely determined that he shouldn't win. And I like Mm. you, I've noticed that. They've all rushed in after mm. after this election. So, but look, we're keeping optimistic here. So, our view is that it's better, a lot better than people say. They nearly did win Wandsworth. They nearly did win these key seats, and so on. And there be, and still, this is the old story being attacked on every side. Now, let's let's go to your book, which is a very interesting look at Labour over the last hundred years since its formation, but with a particular perspective which is that you talk about power as domination and power as transformative power. And that really even the left of the Labour Party has had rather a top-down approach, starting with the Fabians through to Keynes, who actually probably wasn't, I don't, I don't know if he was Labour or no, Liberal. No, he was Liberal. But he was Liberal. But I mean, a sort of social thinkers, beverage mm. as well. Even mm. the Attlee government was top-down. Blairism mm. certainly was. And so you contrast that top-down movement with something happening, practical and tacit politics. So tell us a bit more about that and why you think it's so important. 
Okay, so it began with me trying to puzzle out what this new politics was. Jeremy Corbyn sort of claimed to be the new politics, and I thought, you know, this is interesting. You know, um, what is it? You know, what does he mean by it? And I, he would talk a lot about a kinder politics. And I thought it's a bit more than a kinder politics. And he, we interviewed him for Red Pepper, and he he did have that kindness and that tolerance. He'd say, "I'm I have an 18th century philosophy which says we must always see the best in everybody." You know sort of quasi-Christian, sort of turn the other shoulder. And and so, but I felt it was more than that. And another thing he said in the interview is he said um, that he has, he's not in awe of people with higher education, but on the other hand, he's not, um, he's not, doesn't feel superior to those who haven't. You know, that um, the wisdom lies in the streets. And he gave a story of his own friend who, we lived in a very lived in a very ecological way and knew all about climate change and just turned it into his daily practice. But was a street sweeper, and so you get you get a sense from him that he really does believe in people's capacity. And then I, I mean, this is some I've done this historical work in the past and been struck when reading Beatrice Webb's diaries, which are actually very interesting to read, and they're online from the British Library. And he, she said to her diary, you know, as one does. She said, um, she said, we, meaning her and her husband and the Fabians, because she always spoke in that we way, um, do, we believe the ordinary man and woman can, um, describe her, pro- his or her problems, but cannot find the solutions. For this, we need the experts, i.e. people like the Fabians. And so there's a deep contempt, you know, for the capacities of ordinary people. And that meant the capacities of the, People in the Labour Party. Did she actually say the ordinary sensual man? Yeah, so the there ordinary was not sensual man. Sort of sexual freesaw going on there. Yes, about, yes. But, but, I mean, she's interesting. In, 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 it's interesting in the light of Beatrice Webb's own personal history, but we're not getting into that. Yeah. But it, it was just very. She did very, do a lot of studies of trade unionists, and so maybe this is what was going on. But, <laughs> but even so, even having all this contact with sensual men, she she did not believe they had any capacity to to find answers. And, 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 I mean, then, I mean, Keynes, well, you can read the book to get these quotes, but I was sort of shocked. Keynes was explaining why, this is quite interesting, why he was in the Labour Party and not in the Liberal Party. And he's, um, sorry, why he's in the Liberal Party and not the Labour Party. And he said, the key thing is the, the role of intellectuals. And, and he said in the Tory Party, you know, intellectuals, well, have their sway, but, you know, he didn't agree with them. In the Labour Party, the problem is that, that there are intellectuals, but there, there's no, there's democracy, you know. Yeah. The people actually have a say in the Labour Party. Yeah. So these intellectuals often get defeated. So, my God, and whereas the Liberals, you know, then he said something about the Liberals, the intellectuals are always listened to people like him. Um, but there is, you know, worrying signs of democracy creeping in there. Yeah. And, and so there was that sort of real sense of the people are not, not, not to be listened to. And then that was put into practice in '45 when... You know, nationalisation, you know, was introduced, public ownership. And, you know, workers and people, communities were very, were celebrating, you know, the raising of the flag of the National Coal Board. But mean, and they prepared plans for workers' control in the, in the mines and in the railways. But meanwhile, the people entering the boardrooms of this new public owned, publicly owned company were the old bosses of the, of the coal industry and the railways. And, and a few retired generals and so on who presumed that, that presumed they knew how to, to issue commands. So the whole idea of workers 
knowledge was was just you know irrelevant. Yeah. So, hmm. and you then go on to link that argument with even more cogency to the Blair years, where it was again very top down in a different way. And I just wondered because you, as the way your starting point is the failure of the Blair years, whether you, I can't see how you would disagree with it, but what your thought was about that analysis of it being the top downness of it being part of the problem and the condition for the growth of Corbynism? Yeah, I mean, Tony Blair said that New Labour was the newest political party on the scene and the smallest. It has about five members. Did he? Yeah, that's what he said in in the 90s. Um, So New Labour was, you know, explicitly a project to control um, the Labour Party via a small clique. Um, There was never any real doubts about that. And it did so by occupying all the levers of power and making sure it had... Um, everything sewn up and it did you know it was a progressive thing and the reason why the parliamentary Labour Party at the moment is so dominated by the rights of the Labour Party is because they did such a good job at it um, they they made the left a sealed tomb that was the expression um, so you could leave the left MPs like Jeremy Corbyn there because they were you know harmless and um, were never going to cause any trouble um, but you just don't know, don't let any new ones in um, so that was how they ran that project and I think that the emergence of then there was a kind of a bit of a break with that with Ed Miliband, where those kind of um, that that domination of the levers of power was loosened a bit, and the union started to um, express themselves a bit more forcefully, and eventually that led to um, Jeremy Corbyn. And I think the, the distinctive thing about the Corbyn um, movement, especially in 2015, especially in the leadership election in the summer of 2015, was that it was a whole bunch of people who were sick and tired of spectator politics. And this was inside the party as well as outside the party. It was people who were fed up with watching professional politicians in you know, nice suits um, give their pre-prepared lines, which didn't mean anything at all, mm. um, and insisting that they knew best the ways of the electorate. And suddenly it was people who wanted to, do, to change national politics themselves directly who found that they could do so by taking part, in, in that case, by changing or by electing the leader of the Labour Party who was offering them the chance to do that. You know, what occurs to me, and this goes back to the theme of of your book, Hillary, and, and, and we'll come on to your alternatives. You've lost your mic. No, well, I can turn my coat off. And my <laughs> it's okay, we, I can recondite. Yeah. 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 Well, it just struck me when I was reading a book, and it strikes me again now, there's two anxieties about the left from mainstream politics, isn't there? There's anxiety about, as it were, a sort of Russian model, that the left is a dominant state, nationalisation, you know, um, and then there's the anxiety about democracy, which is something different, yeah. because democracy is ungovernable and um, worrying and of course can be worrying for the left as well now you're the great democrat and your book is arguing let's because we can talk about what's wrong till we till, till 11 tonight but you're Sorry. yes Sorry. we need to be able to hear what she yeah. yeah thanks yeah because what you say is that there are other forms of power sort of um, practical tacit politics that have emerged that could, if they could connect up to a Labour government, do things very differently. That's right, isn't it? That is your argument. So could you give us one example of that that inspired you? And then yes. we'll come and talk about whether that could be done in the... OK. In the so I suppose, yeah, that's the, the key thing, is this idea that um, there, there needs to be a combination of power over government, power's domination, and power... Uh, it's this transformative capacity, you know, the capacity that you, we discovered in the women's movement... You know, the peace movement discovered through the um, people-to-people diplomacy that, that the women supporting the miners' strike discovered through, you know, their own self-organization that you discover through becoming organized. You discover your transformative capacity. 
And I suppose the two examples... Well, no, I've only allowed one. But um, <laughs> She says, looking well, at I wanted too. to say, well, one does relate to, um, to uh, Tony Benn. And, that, and I've experienced that very clearly. And that was when he put forward the idea of an industrial policy that would be based on supporting and encouraging workers in industry. And I was on Tyneside, where there was a strong shop floor movement. But we know that in the 60s, some of these shop floor movements were very, they were militant, but with the, just within the factory. They didn't have a vision of industry. And he said, look, you know, we need you to be having an alternative vision of how industry could be organized. He'd been very inspired by the upper Clyde shipbuilding workers and the way they, he you know, was a believer, if I can say so, in sort of British industry. But he could see that actually the people who cared about industry were the workers, not management. So on times that he would come up and he would, with his allies, Eric Heffern, so on, and, and these shop stewards would come in their hundreds to meet him and to have discussions, out of which, you know, it wasn't like him saying, here's the plan. It was like, this is how we could support you. So they would go away, and one of one group of shipbuilding workers came up with a plan which was called, headed... Um, worker control with management participation. And it was that sort of idea. And so that, um, in the end, he, he, was, um, he was knocked back because of this fear of, then it was not so much the fear of the central state, but the fear of, the, of workers, you know. And, and so and this, another example, just very quickly, was um, when in face of privatisation, the workers in Newcastle, it was the privatisation of the IT services, and they were very inefficient, and, and the workers knew it, but the councils had just sort of nodded through the budget. So when, you know, the, 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 in the end, the council under pressure from austerity, etc., said, look, we've got to privatise, and they just <coughs> threw the problem over the, over the council, as it were, and, and into the hands of BT, who were sort of already waiting, you know, wanting a contract in the northeast, and they came into the council and were given all the information. And the workers said, no, you know, actually, we know. We work on this technology. We know how it's how it's inefficient. And they then began to see, it's interesting, they saw the union, their shop stewards, because in a way, they brought together all the different departments of the council, and they saw the union as a way of bringing together that practical knowledge. Knowledge which, I mean, why I call it practical or tacit, you know, tacit meaning things we know but can't always document. So they would share this knowledge, uh, and that would be the basis of an alternative proposal for improving those services, which they did, and they won. And, you know, the council eventually agreed. And they was, I, I kind of, you know, sat in on their discussions and, and then looked at it afterwards. And they made massive savings. But the savings all went to, because it was public, they went to care for the elderly and, and young people's services and not into the profits of BT. So now, this is what I suppose I would argue. When was the yeah. Newcastle one? When that was, was, it was quite, it was sort of, um, it was late 90s, early 20th century, uh, 21st century. And then in a way, all that was sort of um, almost blocked by the extremities of austerity. So that that did need a bit of space in local government for it to be possible for them, for local, for the council to make the investment once they'd, developed a relationship with the unions and the management had sort of come to see that was the way forward. 
they made an investment in the process of change, employed new managers that the unions helped to choose. Mm. And, and in a way, it was like a sort of industrial democracy where the unions had to agree the changes and then would discuss across all the levels of the workforce mm. how, how they should be implemented. So maybe could we talk about the role of the trade unions in this and in the Corbyn movement? Because you both talk about it in your books in different ways. And if I'm right, it's an oversimplification, but the, the unions were part of a kind of corporatist deal in the post-war period. Mm. So it was a Labour government and the leader of the big unions and so on. But then I, I think I'm also right that what Blairism did was p- put the unions out in the cold to such an extent that they re-radicalised. And so the two questions, the first to you, Alex, is how significant is, is that, do you think? And then the question to you is, does that mean that they're more likely to be part of these transformative projects? But um, Well, it's, it was really significant to the emergency of Jeremy Corbyn because, as you say, the unions <coughs> have been bound into British capitalism, given a seat at the table in the running of industry and so on, um, after the Second World War. And then... Thatcher, it was actually Thatcher who booted them out of that role, you know, with the minor strike and everything. And the fact that the unions had less economic power in society kind of ironically freed them up to act in different ways politically. And the key thing within Labour Party politics is that in the post-war period, the Labour Party was run by an alliance of trade union general secretaries who tend to be on the right of the party Mm -hmm. and MPs who tend to be on the right of the party or the leadership of the parliamentary party. Um, And the rug was pulled out from under that alliance by the fact that the unions no longer had this economic role in in society. And so that manifested itself in the way Blair then explicitly rejected them. Obviously, New Labour was something new in Labour Party terms. It's completely different from the traditional right, the Tom Watson-style right, which is based in the trade unions. Blairism came along as a a result of this new economic relationship, as a result of Thatcherism, and said, um, you know, Thatcher's shown you're no longer needed in the economy. So um, we no longer need you in the Labour Party. And he explicitly said, we're making the decisions now. And it took a long... The unions for a long time were... You know, the, the general secretaries at the time had been through the winter of discontent in 79, 78, 79. And so they were feeling a bit battered, I think. And they didn't immediately respond to this. But gradually it worked its way through and you started to get the election of general secretaries who were called the awkward squad around the turn of the century. Um, and... More recently, people like Len McCluskey um, at Unite. And eventually, it took a long time, but eventually by 2015, when Jeremy Corbyn stood for leader, um, the big unions, Unite, Unison and the CWU, uh, though not the GMB, um, were in a position where they nominated Jeremy for leader, which was really, really unusual for trade unions because they're usually very cautious organisations that just want to nominate the person who's going to win because that's the way you can do deals with them and so on. Yeah, and they'd supported Ed, hadn't they? The, the whole thing about Blairism, I remember hearing people talk about it all through the period, was it was all about the consumer, not the producer, wasn't it? They, they were saying Labour's got to meet the aspirational needs of the consumer and the producer is stuck in a post-war Particularly world. in the public sector. Particularly in the public mm. sector. Mm. But in a way, what Alex has described is the union's political role, bringing mm. Corbyn to power. But does that mean that the unions are more open to your more fundamental transformative ideas about workers, you know, what used to be called workers' cooperatives, which mm. I'm not sure what we call it now. Do you think they are more open to that? I think it's, it's problematic. I agree with Alex about the political role, um, but I think that the, it's, it's more ambiguous because I think a condition for the great interest in the 70s with 
Tony's sort of democratic industrial strategy was that these shop floor workers' organisations were exceedingly powerful and exceedingly self-confident. They were craft, they were, you know, skilled engineers, designers, who had a huge sense of their usefulness to society. So when they were told they were redundant, it was like, we're not, we're, we're useful, you know, and then mm. they had the confidence to develop these alternatives. And now, in a way, they've been so destroyed, mm. both by Thatcher directly, but also by changes in capitalism, you know, by deindustrialization and so on. And so there's a more nervousness, like, you know, for example, over Trident, you know, the, the way in which Len McCluskey um, has not gone down the line of the workers at Lucas Aerospace or Vickers, where they developed alternatives. He's, he's ended up defending um, Trident, not because he believes in it politically, but because he, his members in Barrow particularly, but also elsewhere, are faced with, you know, a sense that if they put a foot wrong in relation to British aerospace, they, they'll be, you know, they'll lose, they'll have no job because there's no other jobs in, in a, a, a town like Barrow. And so I think, but on the other hand, there are signs of interest. I mean, two signs. One is Unite is more opening up, like community branches. Um, you know, it's got a sort of new research institute class. I mean, so there's a potential openness, but how... I think it requires more of a political alliance, you know, to, to, to change that and more encouragement from, from John McDonald. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Jeremy Corbyn, who have begun it. I mean, just very, if I've got one minute to explain. So they, it's interesting because it's not given any publicity, but um, around the time of the, um, the whole poisoning of the Russian diplomat and so on, when everybody was talking about Corbyn as a Soviet, you know, spy and ridiculous stuff. But, but you know, Corbyn and, Jeremy, uh, and, and John McDonald were developing a whole plan for a different kind of public ownership that was based on, on workers' control, on the knowledge, the, you know, their documents say very explicitly that they want to base their management structures on a recognition of the knowledge and capacity mm. of the workers in railways, in mines. In That's exactly you know. your idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And, and um, you know, they got me and other people that have been thinking similar way quite involved. And then, you know, but it's really one reason, reason I'm so frustrated by these attacks because all that's just almost gone. I mean, it hasn't gone, but because they're determined and they're still carrying on working on it. But, you know, there's no publicity about it because it was all, you know, all the news. So, was... so, so that, that, that is very interesting. So you were going and talking to Jeremy and John's teams about how people who worked in everything from public services to industry could be more involved in the processes and redesigning things 
Yeah, well, they were thinking, I mean, John was already thinking like this because he would, we, I suppose we'd done it at the Greater London Council, if I don't know whether people remember that. It was abolished by Mrs. Thatcher, but it was the Government of London before Mrs. Thatcher abolished it. And we did a lot of this kind of thing. Yeah. And we, I, I coordinated a unit called the Popular Planning Unit, which sort of shows the optimism of the moment. But, and John MacDonald was involved in all that. So he, he remembered all that, and that's part of his thinking. So you see that initiative, which is in Corbynism, being mm. squashed by all the sort of... They're, they're just people at the walls trying to get them, so they're... they're I think... I fear it. I mean... I'm interested in whether I, you see I don't... I'm not sure. I mean, they've set up this body called the uh, Community Wealth Commission, mm. which brings together interesting people from a lot of different, you know... Um, policy groups, academic groups, the cooperative movement. They're very positive about the cooperative movement uh, and about some local authorities like Preston that have used local authority power to support co-ops by using procurement powers, you know, the limited amount of power they have now that local government has been so destroyed. Um, so they've set up that and, you know, they still, you know, I was thinking, oh, God, this might suffer, but they seem to have sort of protected the economic policy makers and you know they are they do seem very determined to keep some space so John McDonald's team and then Jeremy's economic team are kind of preserving their own space to yeah. do this and are involving a lot of other people so it's it's very sort of enabling you know they don't you don't have the you know the the, the Corbyn team sort of telling us what their policies are but but they chair it in a very you know in a, like you very enabling way, and sort of encourage people to come up with ideas and involve people you know people like Glenn Jenkins here needs to be involved but, you know lots of people and if people wanted to be involved they am sure they'd but, welcome them. But sorry to now do a sort mm. of Kirsty walk on the discussion. You know, but you know it's 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 like politics is faces outwards to this incredibly hostile environment. Mm. And yet, you know, so you're talking, as it were, about a left family having interesting discussions that are very important. How is that to be conveyed? I'm going to ask Alex mm, to sort yeah. of the um, insight. How is that to be talked about and conveyed and moved on in terms of a mainstream political environment? Or is Jeremy's job not to do that? Is his job, to, you know? No, I think his job is to do that, but it's very, very difficult. I mean... I talked earlier about the 2015 leadership campaign being characterised by this kind of end of spectator politics and participative um, potential. And they actually explicitly in that campaign asked people to send in ideas for policies. So that every policy paper they produced would say, you know, we want more ideas. And they sometimes um, emailed out Labour members in whichever area about tell us what we should do in your area. So they were trying to, I mean, they only had a few months, but they were trying <coughs> to demonstrate that this is how they were going to do stuff. And then I think that that potential hasn't been followed through since um, Jeremy Corbyn became elected leader because they were suddenly faced with such an overwhelming um, you know, barrage of opposition <laughs> that they, it was all they could do just to survive in, um, in the job. And in the 2017 manifesto, it was notable. I mean, it was, it's difficult because it was a snap election, so they only had literally three weeks to write the manifesto. But that kind of participative stuff... Was, had, that was the thing that was dropped. Most of the policies in the, in the 2017 manifesto are actually exactly the same as 2015 policy papers, which I find remarkable that Jeremy Corbyn stood on his leadership election and got 40% of the vote. But um, that participative potential wasn't there. And so it's good to hear from Hillary that they're trying to do it behind the scenes. But it is very difficult <coughs> to communicate that 
when you're being attacked all the time and when it's not an obvious intuitive thing that most people can grasp anyway. Don't you think that what they ought to do is pick out two or three examples that people will really <coughs> thrill to? I mean, I'll tell you an example. Education is something I'm very interested in. Michael Gove and David Cameron brought up free schools. Now, when free schools, yes, exactly, people have that response, so they do free schools. Now, the reason that you have that response is because free schools, in the end, are not being run by parents and teachers, but are being run by faith groups, corporate groups, and so on. And it was part of the hiding of the effect of austerity on the public budget and privatisation. But if you look back at Labour's history, they had a version of free schools in the sense that parents who wanted to set up their school in an area would discuss with local councils, we need a new school. I think it happened in Alexandra Park in North London. And they set up a whole new school. There's one down in South London. Now, it seems to me that Jeremy Corbyn would be very wise to say, look, we actually like the real idea of schools that communities decide they need and that they come together and they do. Only we're going to do it in a participatory way connected to... And if they had three or four examples like that, one from industry, one from a, you know public service and so on, isn't that a way to get the, the point across so that you make participative politics popular? Yeah, I mean, I'm getting worked up about no, no, it because no, no, I no, think no. it could be done. <laughs> I agree. And actually, on free schools, that was that was done in 1968. But that's a slightly different point. But um, no, I, I I agree with you. And uh, but I think, and I was thinking about that in relation to the railways because you've got very strong union uh, that is very interested in all this, and then you've got the political commitment to public ownership, and you've got a public who really, really is fed up with the railways as they are. So that would be a good micro example. Yeah, I mean, what so you do is you get away from the nationalisation or yeah, bust. Yeah. And, and you so you this is what it would else. mean yeah. in Leeds or Derby, you know, or Manchester Piccadilly is a big, you know, so involving all the, I mean, doing a plan. I mean, I, I'd like to do that. Um, but I think it's also difficult because with all these divisions in the Labour Party, it's, you know, you need the allies inside the party. But if Local government, which is still, there's been a sort of lagged effect of change. It's still pretty Blairite. And it's, it's a matter of sort of finding a place or a context where there's political agreement and unity. So that an example like this can be done, you know, with sort of enthusiasm and bigger. I mean, maybe there's a nervousness. I don't know, but it's a good, you know, I mean, I think we yeah. should persist with it. Okay, I, we're now at quarter two. So has anybody got... Um, any questions on this theme? And I'm, I'm interested in us sticking with the idea of how could, it's not Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, but Corbynism mm. in government. How might it work? How might it be different? What are the challenges? Right, so we have Mary there and then, then from there. So that's... Well, thank you very much both to both of you. Both books sound really exciting. And I just have a comment and then a couple of questions. And my comment is about the... Can you speak up, Mary? My comment is about the elections. I mean, yes, they did better than in 1971. And yes, if you take what Laura Parker said, in a general election, there would have been a 12, (coughs) a a Labour majority of 12. But how is it possible when we've had Windrush, Grenfell, 
that so many people voted Tory. I mean, this is something we just have to ask ourselves, and it's so depressing to feel you live in a society where all these people voted for a government which is the nastiest than I can remember in my lifetime. So that's my big general question. And then my specific questions are to Hillary. So all the examples are kind of examples from industry, but industry is now a very small proportion of our overall income. So what, how do we do participation in the gig economy? Yeah. And that's what I'd Did like everybody to hear that? So the first one is, why do so many people vote Tory? And secondly, how do we do I've participation? Got, and, and you've got and a third. My okay, third I'm going to allow you is, that. My I, third one is on Brexit, because I do think that people in Labour underestimate the importance of tactical voting on Brexit. Those 100 people who won Kensington did so because they didn't want Brexit. And I really do wonder, and this is, I know, a right position, but it's something that I share on the left, that this ambiguous position on Brexit has lost okay. some enthusiasm. Now, I ha- yeah, I have to say as a chair, I normally take three questions <laughs> at a go. You've actually provided them. So I'm going to ask, if I'm going to ask you to answer, pick one of those or answer them briefly, and then we'll get to others, yeah. Well, I'll, maybe Alex does the local government one, and yeah. I do the. Why do so know, many people vote Tory? Yeah, who's first? Think, you, you go. Um, why do so many people vote Tory? I'm actually not surprised that their vote is holding up because their vote in the general election in 2017 was um, so high. I mean, they got 13.6 or 7 million votes, which is extraordinary for the Tories. They haven't won so many votes since 1992, um, and that was largely because they absorbed half, 50 percent of UKIP voters. And there is no challenge to the Tories on the right anymore. And they've retained those. And we've seen it in the polls that they've just been completely static on around between 40 and 43%. Because if you're somebody um, who wants to leave the European Union and you don't like immigrants, there's no other party to vote for anymore other than the Conservative Party. So it doesn't surprise me that the vote's holding up. And then you've also got the economic polarisation, the fact that, um, which is expressed in an age difference, that if you haven't got assets and you're young, you vote Labour. And if you have, in general... If you've got a house, um, you vote Tory. Um, so people who want house prices to stay high, want to leave the EU and don't like immigrants, they're going to vote Tory. So that doesn't really surprise me that much, that their vote is more robust than it would be in a normal electoral cycle. Um, on tactical voting and Brexit, I actually I disagree with you on the role of Labour's ambiguous policy in the 2017 general election. Labour, Labour's vote among Remain supporters went up by 10 points from 2015 People who voted for May 2016 and then voted Labour 2017. They, they advanced 10 points, and that was the, the most, you know, that was where most of their extra support came from. But they also advanced five points among Leave voters. And without those five points among Leave voters, they wouldn't have deprived Theresa May of the majority. And there's no evidence that there were any more Remain votes to get, given how badly the Liberal Democrats did. So I don't think it's true that they would have done better if they'd had a more explicitly Remain position. Pardon? Not this. In 2017, but now, well, again, in the local elections, the Liberal Democrats advanced a bit, but nothing particularly amazing. Um, there's, there's not, I mean, and there are lots of places in the north where Labour did actually badly in the local elections, councils like Derby and Dudley and so on, which are strong Leave areas. But it's not uniform because there are other areas like Plymouth where Labour did well, even though it's a Leave area. So um, it, there's just not a clear statistical basis for the argument that if Labour positioned itself as explicitly Remain, it would advance electorally, I don't think, yet. Okay. 
There yes, no, I, I mean, I, I agree that there is a problem that um, the kind of base of industrial democracy, which was well-organized workers, has gone, except, except in the public sector. And my example was the public sector, and that's, that's still where, in spite of Thatcher being really wanting to destroy public sector workers, including in the railways, they, they, they've retained their strength. Um, and so I think there is still the basis there of, of, of the kind of industrial democracy that, that had an important presence in, in manufacturing industry. But then I think also they're very interesting examples internationally of how that uh, recognition of practical knowledge um, can be the basis of a new kind of industrial strategy. So in Barcelona, which is one of the examples in my book, I look at how the new generation, the sort of, well, Alex's generation, the sort of generation who were involved in the Alta globalization movement, involved in um, Occupy and all those sort of direct action movements, and also has a, have a very strong sense of the possibilities of the new technology, information technology, for sort of sharing um, understanding and knowledge and developing um, a, a, a sort of alternative politics from below. Because in a way, that, those technologies can be means of coordinating a distributed network of, of initiatives. So cooperatives could be coordinated through a sort of platform cooperativism. You know, So using the technology which has been appropriated by the private sector for Uber and Deliveroo, using the same technology but using it to coordinate cooperatives and, and decent sort of working conditions. Um, and there's a, a sense of a, a language of the knowledge commons, you know, the idea that knowledge is, is, is a commons that, that people should, they should both contribute to and share. And I don't know, maybe there are two people here from an interesting project in Luton that could maybe say a bit about how they've, you know, in, a, in an area that was industrial, have created a kind of alternative basis of uh, employment and social enterprise of a of a different kind. Yeah, so it's a kind of answer to Mary that there is there are alternatives, but it's mm. a sort of new world and a new language needed with it. I'm very aware you had a question. Mm. Yes. My, my name's Steve. I'm a Labour councillor in Nottingham, but also work for one of the awkward <laughs> squad unions, PCS, and some interesting developments there as well about the re- response of a non-affiliated union to the rise of uh, of uh, the left in, in the Labour Party. But I mean, I, I remember being involved in meetings with Jeremy Corbyn when there was less people in the room than this, you know, and you know, nobody was queuing outside to come in. Uh, and so I've seen the transformation uh, of 2015. And, and just a quick plug for Alex's book. I mean, I've read six or seven books on Corbyn since uh, he, he won. Alex's book is absolutely on the money about <laughs> is, the, the campaign in 2015 <laughs> and what it felt like to be involved in it. And also went out and bought the updated one for the, the general election analysis, and it's you know I would thoroughly recommend it. Um, but um, I have not paid. I have not paid. For I, this he has not paid me any money for that. But I mean, just, just one of the things I'm involved in as a councillor is something called Robin Hood Energy, oh, and yeah. it's the first publicly owned energy company since 1948. Yeah. And what? Yeah, and, and Angelic in Islington is yeah, a subsidiary yeah. of Robin Hood Energy, as in yeah. as is Ram Energy in Derby, yeah. as is White Rose in Leeds, and all those other things. They're all subsidiaries of That's Robin right. Hood Energy. And the point I was just going to make and to get your interest in is the 
2017 manifesto talked about a public energy option in each region. Mm. Uh, it didn't say whole-scale nationalisation of the energy market. And, and maybe that's the best we could get. And actually, maybe this new thinking is about starting from where we are. And what mm. I like about what we've done in Nottingham with Robin Hood Energy is we've stopped saying what we're against. Yeah. We've stopped, yeah. we've stopped think, saying what we're in favour yeah, of. I think that's so, we've tried yeah. to build it from the mm. bottom up. Yeah. So I think we've got to do more of that. Yeah, mm. sorry. You didn't ask me, but I'm getting very enthusiastic. And also I'm getting enthusiastic <laughs> about the name because Robin Hood Energy immediately connects yeah. to so to a whole story about the many, not the few. Uh, the few, many, not the few. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the many, not the few. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing with that publicity. So I'm Although, see what the Daily to, Mail does with a Robin Hood I'm, moniker. I'm you just talk, can see but, that. But just, just very quickly on the Brexit point, because the I campaigned in Derby last week because we didn't have elections in Nottingham. Labour lost three seats in Derby, one to UKIP and two to the Tories. Being more uh, anti-Brexit wouldn't have helped us in Derby. We'd have lost even more seats. It was a, it was a Labour's not hard enough on, on Brexit that lost us those three seats, including a racist campaign against an Asian councillor from UKIP. So, you know, local elections throw up all sorts of peculiarities. Okay, I think we'll take that as a kind of very interesting contribution because I know because there isn't a particular question. Anybody else want to add? Yes. Hello, hi. My name's Alana. Um, I, I don't have any questions, but um, I sort of I do have a. Well, I probably don't have the whole answer, but how did the Tories get so many votes? Well, I recently found out that um, if if you own say ten houses in ten different boroughs or ten different cities, that you as the owner could actually vote for each of those properties. So, yeah, it really, really threw me. So, I mean, it's quite well known that the Tories own lots and lots of properties. So that could be one aspect of why they gain so many. That sounds um, positively 19th century sort of corruption. <laughs> yeah, that's the Tories. I didn't but, know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, surely that's illegal. I thought it's one person, one vote, not one house, one vote. <laughs> A local election. Okay, that's interesting. Anybody else got a um, question there and then question here? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah everyone, yeah. Um, okay, so my, uh, I'm interested in the role of the media and how can, how can we change this because the, the change that happened before the election during Perda last year was just like a breath of fresh air and I just, I really feel like I'm in, in conversations just confronting people um, spouting what they read, but it's a very difficult. Um, it's a difficult argument. It's difficult to say to somebody, "You're only, um, you know, you don't have free will. You're, you're, you're talking. You're saying what you re- you have read." And so, I'm just wondering if you think there is going to be a change, um, uh, if there could be a change in the future to this hostility that we see, particularly in the not just the right wing but the mainstream media. Where do you think that would come from? What can we What can we do to counteract it? Okay, that's great. That's a really clear question, and we'll go to Richie here, and then I think we'll ask you to answer, and then I think we we come to the end. Unless anyone's burning to say something, put your hand up now. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm picking up on the uh, Robin Hood and what are we in favour of, and you know, not what we're against. And I'm sure Hillary's got lots of examples, and maybe Alex has got some to help us with too. So if you say in transport, the, the, the obvious one, you know, there's lots of activists involved in open source software, and you know, the concept of a, a, a cooperatively owned Uber service in a British city. Yeah, yeah. I think something that's happening in Germany, maybe, where uh, local authorities getting behind. 
um, you know, having an Uber-style service, but everybody's paid the minimum wage and all the, they all own it themselves. And stuff like that. And I suppose my critical question of Corbynism is, you know, I know it's difficult to be in a lead the Labour Party and deal with the media and all that, but are they really open to that generation of people who are getting stuff done who were totally switched off party politics mm. um, and so sort of, you know, started doing things in places like Totnes or, you know, wherever it might be? Um, but, you know, is, are they really joined up in a single movement that's going places or, or does the Corbynistas need to open up a bit is my question. Okay, that, well, that's that's a very clear question. Mm. So, do, Alex, do you want to take that? Are they open to the people who were alienated by politics completely and the media? And then we'll ask you mm. to finish on yeah. Um Do you mean it within the movement itself, within the, the kind of the way that the, the, the pro-Corbyn, if you like, movement well, I, works? I just feel like there's a massive movement out there mm. that is on the same territory. And Hillary knows about it because she reported on it for 20 years, but... They're not necessarily a single force with the communists. Right. Well, I think, it's a good question. I think that part of the original purpose of momentum was to try and harness that broader um, spectrum of activists. People who, you know, get 38 degrees emails and sign petitions and so on, as well as people who are, you know, actively doing stuff in their community. Um, and what's happened to momentum, really, is that it's become increasingly a more internally focused mm. organisation because, because Jeremy Corbyn's been under, under such attack and because it's easier to be effective in that area it's tended to become more concentrated on that. And so I think there is a gap between the, the kind of broader potential out there and the Jeremy Corbyn leadership and the Corbyn part of the Labour Party. And I think it's quite urgent that, that more is done to try and link those things up. Um, on the mainstream media, I don't, I don't think they're going to change, no. I mean, there was a, after the general election, there was a brief period where TV producers thought, you know, said openly they should book more left people, more left voices for their programmes. That seemed to last about a week and a half. And then uh, <laughs> back to the, the kind of the normal um, state of affairs, but with a bit more timidity. But then since, since the local elections, yeah, it's it's, the timidity's gone. Now it's just back to pre-election, peak Corbyn, you know, this is all going nowhere, it's going to end in tears, David Blunkett says so. Um, and so we don't have to worry about these strange people who have come out of nowhere. We don't need to have them on our programmes. Um, I think Labour, on the printed press, I think Labour should have a media plurality bill that says that they're going to, that nobody can own big chunks of the press. And then when the attacks come in, they can say, I mean, just because that's a good thing in itself, but also then when the attacks come in, they can say, well, you're only doing it because it's your business interests. And on the BBC, I think the, the uh, guy called Tom Mills, who's written a book about the BBC, um, is really good on an agenda for democratising the BBC. And I think that's something that, that should be pursued. That's why they're so terrified of, him, of Corbyn coming in and democratising the BBC. I should say there are a whole new set of commentators that are of the left, you know, Owen Jones, Dawn Foster, Rachel Shabby. There are people, and they go on and they do that classic, you know, Sunday morning programme, but they, they do, do it, but, yeah. But they're always, I, on, for example, BBC Sunday Politics, I've been cataloguing on Twitter the guests that they have on their political panel, which is, I think, a really good example, because it's not like a paper review where you could have anybody... It's an actual panel of political experts. They introduce them as experts, three people. And you'd have thought one from the right, one from the centre, one from the left would be a balanced panel. But it's nearly always two from the right and one from the centre. Or more recently, you know, people like Rachel Shabby will go, get on there. But it's still two on the right. Like, like this week, it was Melanie Phillips, Tom Newton Dunn from The Sun, and Rachel Shabby. Or yeah. no, Dawn Foster. Yeah. Um, so that's, there's no justification for that. From, I've, you know... People have complained to the BBC and they say, well, you know, we just pick experts. But you know, it's obviously politically slanted. Yeah. OK. 
So, Hilary, your, la- your final thoughts? Well, I think just we have to, to answer those questions. I mean, firstly, on the, the question of, you know, is the, the new Labour Party open to this politics of doing? And I think it is. I mean, I think that, that, that John McDonald has shown that in his quickness to respond to Preston and Nottingham. I think they're very supportive of Nottingham. In fact, that's the basis of the manifesto commitment. And so I think it's up to us to do it. And I think that in a way, the new generation, again, I can't speak being so old, I can't really speak for them, but my feeling from knowing them through a pepper and so on, is that they are about the politics of, of doing things, of getting things done and taking initiatives that illustrate an alternative, an alternative society, an alternative economy. And that momentum, I think, need to move much more in that direction. But they are. I mean, I was, I've been going around a bit talking about my book to different momentum groups, and I was in Brighton. And, you know, they were, they were organizing an event around a manifesto. And it was about ideas, but backing up all the ideas with practical initiatives. So I think it's there. And, and somehow Momentum's got to feel that its job is to strengthen that autonomous space from the sort of political shenanigans of Parliament and so on. And um, I think that actually that's key to the media because I think that in a way we can only, you know, given we can't now change, challenge the monopolistic nature of the media, we've got to break through that sort of silence and that blockage. And I think having stories and alternatives, mm. I mean, another person is Aditya Chakravorty in The yeah. Guardian. Actually, and he does a brilliant series. And he does, on, that yeah. series is really good. And, it's, it, yeah. you know, that has an impact because yeah. it's telling an alternative story that yeah. immediately, yeah. you know, makes... Polit- uh, Corbyn's politics vivid and 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 and, and spreadable. Yeah. So I think it is up to all of us that that kind of would like to see a change of government to look into our own workplaces, communities, seeing how we can, in a way, refuse the existing system but work with each other to create alternatives, small or or, or large, and then get support yeah. from local authorities because local authorities are very <laughs> beleaguered, but they can find resources for new initiatives you know they're beleaguered on the old powers like housing and social services but they can you know, they could support a cooperative of speech therapists or mental health workers or you know there's a lot of innovation that's possible okay i, I think that's a brilliant place to stop because it's just a brilliant place to stop okay. <laughs> and up. that is what is known time's as a up. tautology but um, that's the best I can do can I just say I think we could honestly talk about this all night I think it's so many interesting things that sort of come up like shoots in the ground but thank you all very much for being a very attentive audience thank you mainly to our two speakers thank you and thank you thanks for listening to find out more about London Review Bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.